Long live the queen of rock and roll, Tina Turner. With heavy hearts, we report that Tina Turner's management team announced today on her passing at the age of 83. Tina Turner, a symbol of resilience, shaped the sound of rock and roll for generations. From her iconic collaborations with Ike Turner in the 60s and 70s, A Fool in Love and Proud Mary, to her own solo projects, River Deep, Mountain High in the 60s, and to the 80s with What's Love Got to Do With It, Tina Turner's influence was undeniable. As a first black woman on the cover of Rolling Stone, Tina Turner shattered boundaries and became one of the best-selling recording artists of all time. Today, we celebrate Tina Turner's extraordinary life. Please enjoy this encore presentation on the Tea on Tina Turner, which aired in April of 2021. Everyone expected 1984 to be a strange dystopian future, but it turned out to be an amazing year for pop culture, with Tina Turner reigning supreme as the queen of rock and roll. Although the press described Tina Turner's chart-topping album, Private Dancer, as a comeback, Tina considered it her debut album. Free from the control and abuse she faced from her ex-husband, Ike Turner. In the new documentary film, Tina, the queen of rock and roll has the final word on her extraordinary life, from growing up poor and black in Nutbush, Tennessee, to her relationship with Ike Turner, and how she broke free to become one of the world's most celebrated artists. The new documentary is going to get you hooked on Tina all over again. But despite it being an in-depth look at the pop icon's life, many amazing things were briefly touched on or left on the cutting room floor. Today is Tina Turner Day! We're looking back at the life and legacy of the queen of rock and roll. From the incredible year she had in 1984 to her rock and roll roots with Ike Turner. Who made her iconic wigs? How did Cher save Tina's career? And what celebrities make her want to say, you better be good to me. <laughs> I'm Fausto Fernos. I'm Mark Fillion. And this is Feast of Fun. the Tina Turner Factory. <laughs> the queen, the queen of it all. Yes. Uh, today is Tina Turner Day on Feast of Fun. And, you know, 
Every now and then, I think you guys might like to hear something from us nice and easy. <laughs> but you see here at Feast of Fun, we never, ever do anything nice and easy. So we're going to take the beginning of this podcast that looks on the life and legacy of Tina Turner and do it easy. But then we're going to do the finish rough. <laughs> That's the way we do Tina Turner. Oh my God. <laughs> I'm, I'm back. I feel like a child again, watching the Tina Turner documentary on HBO Max. How old were you when uh, Tina Turner kind of burst back onto the scene in 1984 with Private Dancer? Well, I was a scholar of, of 1984 because I wasn't <laughs> born yet. You were a little, little baby, right? I was, a little, I was in middle school when Tina Turner busted on the scene and I was just like, who is she? She's so much fun. And I had a, a gal pal named Gloria in middle school who everybody compared her to. Oh, really? And Gloria started like putting her hair up and wearing the same dresses that Tina wore in her music videos. And, you know, being like, you better be good to me. That hair was influential. Now, I was in high school at that point in time. Yeah. I had my older sister, Margo, had a haircut style like that. It was the same color, kind of like the, the uh, tawny blonde. And my friend Kathy, her hair was the same kind of style because uh, everybody like it, that was the look. And it was a new it. look for Tina Turner, too. Mm -hmm. Like she uh, usually usually in the What's Love Got to Do With It movie. Uh, there's a scene, really strange scene where they like needed a new look, so they flipped the wigs around. <laughs> Just like in Dreamgirls, right? Just like in Dreamgirls, yeah. I, I think maybe I'm confusing one movie with the other. But I think you but, know. <laughs> but it is, like, it, it just to me, it was like Tina Turner had this like iconic look mm -hmm. that. Uh, people loved, mm -hmm. you know, in the 1960s, uh, she, along with Ike Turner, mm -hmm. they really uh, innovated and created the rock and roll style that the world loves today. Well, they're saying that Ike Turner had pretty much the first rock and roll album, mm -hmm. but for whatever reason, they stole that merit away from him and gave it to somebody else. And so he became bitter and that ru ruled his entire career and his relationship with Tina. And, you know, and in the middle of the night, uh, she ran out from one hotel in Dallas, Texas and showed famously showed up at, a, I think it was a Marriott with 35 cents, a gas card and her name, Tina Tana, mm -hmm. and said, if you are good to me, I will pay you back. Mm -hmm. And she was able to escape uh, Ike Turner and, you know, went into the realm of legend mm -hmm. and, you know, so much did, her did, divorce mm -hmm. with Ike Turner very much has shaped Tina Turner's career and life to the point that, you know, we see in the documentary, she's just like sick of talking about it. Yeah. I mean, that's part of the reason why she says in the documentary, she wrote, she did the movie, she wrote the book because she just didn't want to be defined by mm -hmm. it anymore. She wanted it to be out there, but you know, everybody always wanted to ask about it because you know, Ike Turner and Tina Turner, they were a thing in the sixties. People knew them. Uh, they never really uh, got super, super like rock famous. You know, people knew them and they respected them, uh, but they didn't get the kudos or the money that they probably should have had at the time. Uh, but they made good money. They, they were made, certainly like they were able to move to Los Angeles yeah. and buy homes and have a recording studio yeah. in their home. They were not hustling but like we they, are here at Feast of Fun. But, you know, but they do show that home yeah. in the documentary. And to me, I mean, of course, it's 40 years later, 50 years later. It doesn't seem like it's not a fabulous mansion. It's not right? a palace. No, it's not a palace. I would say at this point in time, it was probably in some ways, a, you know, a fairly humble home for people who are, you know, rock stars. It's not a palace. No, it's not like she has today, you know, living next to Lake Zurich. She has a fabulous home. She has incredible wealth. She's married to a rich guy. Uh, She's married to the president of EMI Records, 
was at one point in time was the fourth largest record label on the planet Earth. Mm, That's some money, honey. (laughs) And, you know, Tina Turner in a lot of interviews says she in some ways kind of regrets being ambitious. um, But at the same time, it's her life. She, She is a Buddhist. So she's very much in in one ways accepting the struggles that she had and coming to peace with it. But on the other hand, she feels like, you know, maybe life would be much simpler if she just, you know, became a school teacher in, in St. Louis, Missouri, you know? Mm -hmm. So, so, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to, to tell, or, you know, to, to make sense of, of all that we see with Tina Turner, because Tina Turner very much didn't want to be defined by her failed marriage, by the trauma she experienced at the Ike's mm-hmm. the hands of Ike Turner. But she also, you know, her album, album Private Dancer in 1984 was very much a response to that divorce. Like every song is, is, you know, you better be good to me. What's love got to do with it? You know, it's like, I might've been queen. Like a lot of the songs in that album are just like, it's almost like she's talking to Ike Turner but digging deeper in the research that we did for the show, mm. she's really talking to the record labels. You better be good to me, <laughs> which better, makes a lot more sense. You know, and it's like, you know, it's time they show interview after interview and people keep bringing it up. And she she gets really tired of talking about it over in a sense, you know, but the media really does want to focus on it. And so I think, you know, it brings up a very important question is, you know, uh, were they so interested in Tina, now she's brilliant. We know she's brilliant. Yes. She's loved. She's created enormous work. She is the queen of rock and roll. Uh, but the media interest in that relationship that she had with Ike, is it is it a way, you know, is it a form of just trying to pathologize black men in, in American society? You know, it's deep. The popularity I, of, yeah. of that story, definitely. Um, there's, there's a lot of layers there, yeah, and, right? Because, yeah. you know, as a young kid, I was like enamored with Tina Turner. I felt like she was the gal, my gal pal, my best friend, mm-hmm. you know. And and it was, you know, as a as a as a little uh, in the middle school watching MTV and uh, Night Tracks and USA All Night, sure. and and seeing you know Tina Turner busting on the scene with what's her jean jacket, her leather dress, and what's love got to with it, do with it. And we're gonna talk about the wig in a minute, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> because the wig has a story. By the way, the 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 second the 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 reinvented wig had a story, but when she busted onto the scene, she was somebody who really um, was so like Cindy Lauper mm-hmm. that year. Cindy Lauper's was uh, she's so unusual was also out that year. A lot of big stuff like a virgin, all those things. Let me let me give but you guys uh-huh. to go back to my question though, and then saying that about yeah. you know because I, I, it's kind of like you drop it as a little bit of a bomb and yeah, I yeah. Want to we want to get deeper yeah. into Ike and we, Tina later. And, yeah, and so you know the thing that I said that about pathologizing black men and them keep trying to bring it up. You know, under no circumstances did Tina deserve any kind of abuse. You know, right? But it's interesting that that's what the media wanted to always focus on, uh, not necessarily always talking about her art or what she's doing but about that terrible relationship. And it's not a it's not a question I can answer on this podcast today. It's not a question that Fausto can really answer on that. But it is something to kind of like keep it into perspective as to why they kept asking her about it. And that's why we're doing this podcast yeah. today, because I feel like Tina Turner's legacy is much bigger than what was presented in the Tina Turner documentary. As much fun as it is, mm. it was definitely a project where Tina Turner was very much involved in creating. And, you know, in some ways, uh, 
I look forward to a, to a new documentary in the future that really examines all the undiscovered, unexamined things about Tina Turner's life and legacy that the documentary just couldn't do because she was like, I don't want to talk about that, or this is really painful, or this is not interesting to me, but is actually really interesting to the rest of the world. So to better understand Tina Turner, and this is where Feast of Fun comes along, we're going to unpack today her life and legacy, and especially things that were left on the cutting room floor, like her involvement in the Mad Max movie, which is <laughs> made her a camp icon, you know? Don't tell me about the rules. I made the rules. <laughs> and this man has broken the law. Mm -hmm. And the law says, bust the deal, face the wheel. Bust the deal, face the wheel. <laughs> now, of course, they did mention that in the documentary a little bit. For but a hot second. For a hot second. But, you know, again, it's an interview where it's her with Mel Gibson and the interviewer brings up the abusive relationship with Ike instead of like focusing like, here's my movie. Here's the movie, Mad Max Beyond you know? the Thunderdome. Yeah. And let me tell you, uh, honey, you know, I think uh, her character in Mad Max Beyond the Thunderdome is a hero. Oh, without a doubt. Because she took a nuclear apocalypse and chaos and renegades and organized it into barter town built on pig shit. Literally. <laughs> it had Thunderdome. I mean, who couldn't ask for better entertainment? Yeah, Roger Ebert <laughs> described the, the fight sequence in Mad Max Beyond the Thunderdome to be um, extremely innovative and created a new way to show action in a film. And also position, right? it was very acrobatic. And even Tina Turner um, did all her own stunts, which her, her, you know, this was filmed right after 1984, like in the heels in, in the beginning of 1985 and her record label and everybody was like, what the hell are you doing? And she's like, I want to be a movie star. <laughs> so Tina Turner, you know, we're going to get to the beginning of her origins in Nutbush, Tennessee and, you know, her relationship with Ike Turner and the, and the, and the Kings of Rhythm, which was the band before it became the Ike and Tina Turner Review. Mm. But let's talk about 1984. What, why, was, why was the world like holding its breath in 1984 the way the world held its breath in the year 2000 and the way they're holding their breath here in the year 2020? Well, there was George Orwell's book called 1984, which for people who don't know about it, it was about a dystopian future where, where the government controlled practically everything you did. They were always watching you. Uh, your neighbors were spying on you, reporting on you, calling you out, all those kinds of things. And so there was a lot of, um, you know, anxiety about that year that it was coming up. You know, most kids in school had to read it because it was coming up. And, you know, I had to read it in high school. And, uh, you know, it's a good book. Uh, and in some ways, we're more living in that 1984 now with our social media than, you know, in cameras everywhere, the CCTVs, than we were back in 1984. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Sting with the police came up with an album, Synchronicity. And in that album is every breath you take, every move you make. <laughs> Listen, look, reflect on this amazing list of albums that came out this year. Uh, Prince's Purple Rain. Mm. U2's Pride in the Name of Love. Bruce Springsteen had also his comeback with Born in the USA. Madonna busted onto the scene with Like a Virgin, where she stood on stage and asked the audience to marry her, and, she, and the whole world said, yes. Wham! <laughs> Do you remember Wham? Wake me up before you go, go, because I'm not planning on going solo. That came out that year. 
Cindy Lauper. Girls just want to have fun. I mean, these are. I watched the premiere of that video on MTV. You did. I did. What was it like for you? Uh, you know, we were at uh, a friend's house and they were they were having a party, but they were like college students. They were having a party. Ooh, we were like, you were crashing yeah. a party. Well, you know, listen, I'm from Erie, Pennsylvania. A lot of big Catholic families, uh-huh. right? And so the older kids would have, the parents would be away. The older kids would have a party and they'd be like, hey, my brothers and sisters are having a party. Come on over. Um, so the Go-Go's head over heels. Head over heels. No time to think. It's like a curse. It's out of sync. Culture Club wins the Grammy Award for Best New Artist. George, uh, Boy George, Gave a speech via satellite saying, thanks, America. You got style. You got taste. And you know a good drag queen when you see one. Mm. I mean, the music was queer. It was racially diverse. You had Patti LaBelle. You had Beverly Hills Comp was the, the movie that was hot, hot, hot. Ghostbusters with Ray Parker Jr. Conan the Destroyer with Grace Jones. Island Life, uh, her biggest album came out a year later. Mm. You had Van Halen's 1984. You had um, all these, you know, entertainers that to this day in 2021, we're still amazed and dazzled and celebrated. Michael Jackson's Thriller came out that year at the end of the year. December of 83, right? December of 83 and became a chart-topping hit song and made Vincent Price... A household name again. Oh, yes. And then everybody started dying from AIDS and culture died. Well, um, the AIDS crisis was happening simultaneously. Mm. And a lot of the music and, um, you know, was kind of very exuberant. And um, also there were songs like, you know, we don't have to take our clothes off to have a good time. <laughs> oh, no. So there was a lot of um, uh, later on some mm. songs like, um, uh, what is it? People are still having sex. This AIDS thing isn't working. But, um, you know, um, in Africa, there was a, a, what is it, in Ethiopia, there a was famine. a famine. And so, um, you know, they got together and did a song, which very misguided, uh, called Do They Know It's Christmas by Band-Aid. All this is happening in 1984, okay? Um, nev- like the like movie culture watershed year. It's a watershed. The movie Never Ending Story. That is like an inspiration to trans uh, and non-binary people all around the world. Hits theaters. Um, ZZ Top's Legs is a single. Huey Lewis Sports continue to release hits. Weird Al Yankovic, his big monster hit, Eat It, which was basically a parent screaming at a child, just eat it. <laughs> and MTV is driving a lot of this, right? Because like MTV was was pretty new to the market. It was especially like, you know, a lot of people didn't have cable uh, in the early 80s. But, you know, once MTV hit, a lot of people were like, wow, we can watch music on television. And, and so you had MTV, which was hitting us from cable. But it also like for people who didn't have cable, you could watch uh, super stations like uh, WTBS mm-hmm. in Atlanta that had night tracks. So it was like cable for people who can afford MTV. And you had USA All Night. And up, you, all and, night. Up all night. And you had um, a lot of uh, shows that showed music videos. And so for young people like myself, we would stay up way too late and be groggy at school. But we would see the new music videos that night. Um, and a lot of movies like, uh, you know, Footloose, Beverly Hills Cop. Um, there's, there's, you know, other films that came out that year, um, were really 
great at using music and popularizing music. And then so music videos were like showing clips of the movie along with the singer um, in, interweaving themselves like Ray Parker Jr. and Ghostbusters mm-hmm. wears the Ghostbusters jumpsuit, you know, and has Dan Aykroyd in the Bust music video. makes me feel good. Like at the very end of the video, mm-hmm. they have a, a long list of celebrities be like, who's afraid of that ghost, you know? And then they all get uh, the marshmallow man comes and gets them. And, 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 you know, for Tina Turner, it was a huge transformation. And so, you know, so I, I started digging around. And I was like, where did that wig come from? <laughs> it's iconic, right? Yeah. Now, she does an interview with Mike Wallace at one point in time. We watched it on 60 Minutes. And it's, it's awkward and it's a weird interview. It was something about, like, what does he say about her voice? And it, it, like, she doesn't like her voice. She feels that it's too masculine. She thought it was too masculine. But then also, too, he said yeah. something about, like, uh, nothing uh, can stop her voice, even a beating. Was that yeah, what, was that's that what, what he, he said? said? Yeah. And it was just like, okay. And then he asks her, like, about her wigs. Which is not a, something you would say to Tina Turner if you're trying to relax her. Yeah. It was like, Mike Wallace was like, I barely know who this person is, but I'm, you know, Ed Bradley wasn't available. And he literally says that in the beginning of the interview. Oh, does he really? Ed Bradley wasn't available? Wasn't available to the interview. So Ed Bradley me. interviewed uh, the woman that you love the most, Eartha Kitt. Eartha Kitt, yes. And that was uh, a legendary. And legendary. And actually, Fausto wrote to uh, Eartha Kitt's daughter. Kit Shapiro. Kit Shapiro to ask, did your mother know Tina Turner? And she responded and said that they, they uh, she doesn't think they ever met, but Eartha loved Tina Turner. Of course. Yeah. you know, and, and certainly Tina Turner influenced um, you know, I'm sorry, Eartha Kitt laid the foundation for artists like Tina Turner to thrive. And, uh, but then Ed Bradley yeah. asked, starts asking Tina about her wig. And she's just like... Not Ed Bradley, Mike Wallace. No, I'm sorry. Mike yeah. Wallace asked her about her wig. And she's just like, I make all my own wigs. And Faust and I look at each other, what? Mari Povich did a test. <laughs> and that is a lie. And then he asked her, he's like, well, where do you get the hair? And he, she goes from africa <laughs> and i'd be like she's really shining him on you yeah. know what i mean because like bullshit. It's, you know because it's like you know maybe early on she may have styled her wigs or done those kinds of things but you know uh, you know i i'm sure she, maybe she does have skills uh but first of all i don't think anybody gets wig hair from africa it's mostly from india and china right yeah correct, correct yeah. yeah and so uh it was it was maybe she, maybe, maybe she did maybe she did maybe she did however in 1984 you know, it, it was it was really hard for Tina Turner to establish a career after she left Ike Turner and somebody who financially helped her and actually got her on television again was Cher. And I imagine that Cher probably had a lot to say and influence uh, Tina Turner to give her the strength to leave Ike. Right. Well, because Cher had, you know, they had the Sonny and Cher show. Right. And, right. you know, Cher did a show with uh uh, Tina Turner and with Kate Smith, they did a, a, a Beatles medley, and Ike Turner was also performing. His their band performed for it, right? And then later on, she brought. Uh, it was just her and, uh, and Tina performing together, like on a, a later version of her show, The Share Show. When I was younger, so much younger than today, I never needed anybody's help in any way. But now those days are gone, I'm not so self-assured Now I find I've changed my mind, I've opened up the door Oh, help me if you can, I'm feeling down And I do appreciate you being around Help me get my feet back on the 
I don't know why, like, Kate Smith is there, because it seems, like, really awkward. Kate's, yeah, Kate was an American icon. Yeah, and, and, and you know, the, the, the Sonny and Cher show that later became the Cher show was sort of this um, proof of concept that a woman could leave her husband in mm-hmm. entertainment and still survive on her own. And, you know, for, for Tina Turner, there was a lot more uncertainty because she is a black woman and because she didn't have uh, her career as firmly established at the time as Cher did. And so I, um, Cher financially and David Bowie helped, um, you know, Tina Turner tremendously when she, you know, we, we hear about Tina Turner divorcing um, Ike Turner and only keeping her name in the lawsuit mm-hmm. in the in the settlement in court, but that is not the case. She she also had to keep a lot of the liability and the debts. So Tina Turner became financially responsible for all the gigs that they had to cancel, and all the deposits she had to give it back, not Ike Turner. Mm-hmm. So Ike Turner screwed Tina Turner, but I'm sure Tina Turner's lawyers also screwed Tina Turner as well. Mm. But and, she had faith yeah. in herself and she was just like, I can come back from this. I can do something with it. And this. so Tina Turner was performing in Las Vegas and she, you know, was trying to to make a comeback. She was trying to get, you know, record labels. She was just trying to create a new look. And, you know, at the same time, Patti LaBelle was also sort of, and a lot of other entertainers were spiking their hair up. So, um, t- Patty LaBelle the had, 80s. It was the kind of like a response to the new wave punk mm-hmm. kind of did that style, right? Yeah, and Patty LaBelle's songs like "I Got a New Attitude" that from 1984 too. So, Tina Turner uh, was involved with a gentleman named Arthur Johns, and you don't know who Arthur Johns is, but you know his wigs. Mm. Let's look at his resume. Oh, it's it's pretty impressive, and he's been doing wigs since like the '60s. He's done yeah. like Sharon Tate's wigs. So he's done Sharon Tate's wigs. He's done all the hair for the Bee Gees and Rod Stewart. Farrah Fawcett. He he came up with the Farrah Fawcett curls. He did all the hair for Dynasty, and for years worked for Dominique Devereaux, Diane Carroll, Diane Carroll. Mm-hmm. He did uh, Bette Midler's Divine Miss M perm red bob look. He did Jennifer Beals' pringy curls in Flashdance. And my favorite, Carrie Fisher's Princess Leia's buns for the first Star Wars movie. <laughs> and she was so mad because she was just like, why do I have to wear this ridiculous hairdo? Uh, and then when she saw, what was it, like Princess Amidala, who had all sorts of different hairdos, she's like, George, why didn't you do that for me? So uh, Olivia Newton-John was close friends with Tina Turner, and um, she uh, was one of, another artist who gave Tina um, a lot of breaks and, and involved her in her projects. Mm. And so, um, and Arthur did wigs for her, her wigs for Greece, right? He did all the hair for the movie Greece, and uh, Olivia Newton-John's "Tell Me About It" stud mm. at the very end, where she transforms, that was Arthur John's creation. Mm. He did Dolly Parton's wigs during her nine to five era, and so Tina Turner turned to him or his, her people and said, we need to reinvent Tina. And they came up with that. I would describe that wig as almost like a giant box. They describe it like like lion's mane as a haystack. It's a haystack. (laughs) It's big. Like Mm -hmm. if you look at her, it, it makes her, cause you know, I thought Tina Turner was always like five foot 10 or something. Mm -hmm. She's like five foot four. Every buddy in Hollywood and singers, musician, musicians are all, 
tiny, tiny, tiny people. I learned this when I worked at a music uh, place here in town. I'd see these posters for these guys. You know, I'd be like, oh, my God, they're really hot. He's really hot. And, you know, it was when I first started working there, one of the waitresses there, Stacy, comes up to me. and She's just like, they never look like their pictures. Either they don't look like their pictures at all or they're really tiny. And, you know, she was right. Yeah, you know that wig. Uh, as as a uh, in high in middle school, I would draw extensively. Like I was obsessed with that wig, and 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 you know, people talk about you know cisgendered women not being successful drag queens, but what exactly is a drag queen if it's somebody who reinvents their look and creates a character that sort of becomes a a alter ego for their authentic selves. Mm -hmm. And slathers on a lot of makeup, way too much makeup, puts on this wig and makes the world fall in love with them. What do you mean by way too much makeup? I mean, How you, look dare at, you? you look at some of the photos of, of Tina Turner mm -hmm. throughout her career by today's standards. You're like, she could be on RuPaul's Drag Race. <laughs> I mean, because a lot of a lot, a lot of other looks were a, a lot more subdued, but mm. she her cheek contour her eyeshadow. There was a look is, in is that. There was a look in that yeah. '80s where you had a lot of that stuff, and I think a lot of it was uh, inspired by that. Who was that? Was that that Nagel artist who, mm -hmm. who did a lot of that intense shading on his uh, paintings, right? And so, you know, uh, Tina Turner's uh, wig and you know what's love got to do with it was a sensation, but it was a song that she didn't want to sing. I know it's incredible. And when you listen to the original song that is based on your, you kind of get it. You're just like, uh, this song is, is weird and kind of, uh, mamby pamby. I think is the kind of description I would give it. It's, it's, uh, super white. So what's love got to do with it was recorded by a Eurovision winner named Bucks fizz. It was like a, an ABBA knockoff mm -hmm. or, or a contemporary of ABBA. The song, let, let me play you a little bit of it. It's, it's very sterile. It's So if you if you search for the video on YouTube, you can see some really hot muscle men in there. <laughs> it's I guess trying to appeal to like a gay aesthetic in Europe at the time. And so her label went up to Tina Turner and said, "It's like we want you to sing this song." Mm -hmm. And she's like, "Absolutely not. <laughs> this is square. This is stupid. And it's bringing up all shit about Ike Turner. She didn't she didn't want to do that song." But the songwriter pretty much said to her, "Is like you can make this song your own." And, you know, as soon as she kind of like within the first couple of minutes of just trying to sing, he's like, sing it. If you like it, we'll use it. If not, we'll throw it out. And she got it. Uh, what's love got to do? So, so she's Tina Turner's voice. And this is something we can talk about is a growl. It's a scream. It's mm -hmm. it's, rock, it's and rock and roll. Yeah, it's rock and roll is not safe. Rock and roll is is um, dangerous. God, dangerous. Right. <laughs> rock and roll will fuck you up. And, and transform you into something you were not expecting. And, you know, Tina Turner throughout her career is somebody who took a lot of risks and is somebody who was very much interested in that danger as, as a music, as a musician, as a singer and as a performer. And, you know, unfortunately I think, 
you know, she found herself in a really bad relationship with Ike Turner, where he was just heaping physical abuse for years onto her. As much as people love Tina Turner, Tina Turner doesn't love Tina Turner that much in, in the sense that she felt always her voice to be ugly. And that's unusual. You know, she thought of herself as a singer, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, she grew up, I guess, singing a little bit in, in the church. And then she said, I want to be a singer, uh, you know, found this band. and was like, I want to be part of this band. The Kings of Rhythm in mm-hmm. 1954. So they were originally based out of Mississippi. And Ike Turner's sister was like, why don't you guys move to St. Louis? Because you'll have a lot more venues and be more successful. And they did. And they became a sensation in the St. Louis area. At the same time, Anna Mae Bullock, the young woman who uh, became Tina Turner, was moving from Nutbush to um, to St. Louis and was living in the area. And, you know, they were so good at what they did. Ike Turner as a musician and Tina Turner as a singer and as a performer that in a lot of ways they were unstoppable. It, it really, as you said, is like, I think it's the bigotry of the world, racism that and particularly in the United States that kept them from being a bigger act. Mm-hmm. And that band, too, it was like, you know, Tina was part of that band. Uh, and, but there were other women in the band, too, and they had their own kind of solos. Like everybody mm-hmm. got a chance to shine. So it was kind of like a very uh, a community kind of sense. Right. The band was called the Kings of Rhythm and Ike Turner. And we've seen this in show business was screwed over by so many people because he would put together these musicians, put together these amazing recordings, and the person would be like, thanks, see ya! And, you know, screw themselves also because Mm -hmm. a lot of the people that he helped with with their singles didn't amount to anything. You know, Mm -hmm. they would leave them. And it was like, you know, they never valued Ike Turner's musical genius. He's somebody who was very... He struggled verbally. He's somebody who stuttered a lot. And so he found these amazing musicians and performers and put together these, these shows that people were just like, this is a new musical style. This is rock and roll. And so when he recognized Tina's genius and he was just like, this really is our vehicle. Right? Well, uh, not he exactly. A, he kept a thumb on it. No, He's not exactly. Not exactly. Uh, Tina Turner um, caught their act. And um, according to uh, interviews with other people in the band, she was entranced mm-hmm. by them and she was begging to perform. And they were like, well, you know, we already have our band put together. We don't really need anybody. And it was a common thing at the time to have people from the audience come onto the stage and perform. And so just like, uh, you know, the Apollo Theater, um, and they usually would suck. <laughs> and you'd boom them off. Well, I think, though, too, is like uh, in the olden days, because, you know, what we're looking at here is like the early 60s, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, back in the day. A lot of people sang. Everybody would, like, you'd go over to somebody's house, somebody would play the piano, you'd have sing-alongs, you'd do these kinds of things. People don't do that kind of stuff anymore. At least not very yeah. often, yeah. you know? So, you know, people belong to choirs, uh, you know, men's choirs, women's choirs, that kind of thing. People were just more musical, I think, in the past in that kind of sense. And so it wouldn't be unusual for somebody to be able to just get up there and sing a song. Nowadays, you kind of feel like you really have to be trained to get the nerve to do something like that, unless it's something like karaoke and then, you know... It's anybody's game. So uh, Tina Turner got, uh, before she even sang for Ike Turner, she was dating the saxophonist for the Kings of Rhythm, Raymond Hill, and had a child with him. Mm-hmm. And and she was like begging uh, the rest of the band to let her perform. And they were like, no, you know? So so um, I guess one day uh, they, she, they said, okay, Tina, come onto the stage. And she said, will you play B.B. King's You Know I Love You? 
And this is, you know, of course, this is re-recording many years later, but this is what it probably sounded like. It's so powerful. And yet Tina Turner wasn't crazy about her voice. Everybody wanted to be Diana Ross at that time, including Tina Turner. So Diana Ross sings like very sweetly and almost like a whisper, like, baby, 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 where did our love go? Ooh. Right. Mm -hmm. Whereas Tina Turner would sing that like, baby, 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 where did our love go? Ooh. (laughs) Right. It's a guttural style of singing. And I learned how to sing like that, imitating Tina Turner in high school. So like I bought Private Dancer and learned every single one of those songs. And you had all the moves down to Proud Mary too, didn't you? <laughs> and so and <laughs> my drag act um, in the early 90s was me doing, uh, found a karaoke version of, of um, Proud Mary and I did it as Eartha Kitt, which actually works really, really well. <laughs> what does that sound like? You know, every now and then... We think you'd like to hear something from us nice and easy. But there's just one thing. You see, we never, ever do nothing nice and easy. We always do it nice and rough. So we're going to take the beginning of the song and do it easy. But then we're going to finish rough, because that's the way we do Proud Mary. And we're rolling, rolling, (laughs) yeah, rolling down the river. Listen to the story. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, it works as and actually um, uh, slowed down the beginning Mm -hmm. to make it more like a a lounge song. Ah. Washed a lot of plates in Memphis, pumped a lot of pain down. People think it's pumped a lot of pain. Gas down in New Orleans. Pain, like you're you're pumping pain, you're suffering, you're struggling. It's it's, it's slang for octane. Mm -hmm. Type of gas, right? Yeah, it's mm-hmm. good gas. <laughs> Pumped a lot of pain down in New Orleans. Do you, people ask, like, what, what is Proud Mary? Is, is a Proud Mary a person? And it's like, Proud Mary is a steamboat. Steamboat so that it, it takes was, you uh, out from St. Louis and down the Mississippi River, and you don't mm-hmm. see the good side of the city until you hitch a ride on the Riverboat Queen. Because people on the river are happy to give. The song was written by John Fogarty of Clarence Clearwater Revival. He uh, had just left... He was discharged from the National Guard and wrote the song because he was like in a crisis. America was in deep poverty at the time. And he a lot of people were leaving the urban environments, the cities and moving to rural America. There was some white flight, but also to a lot of the hippie movement and whatnot. They were all kind of like, let's go out to the country and live on the land, man. Yeah, and we have friends who still live there. Yeah, they're still there. <laughs> they, they went and they never came back. <laughs> and, you know, and, and for a lot of black Americans, the song really struck a nerve and, um, you know, ec- echoed well, a lot of gospel mm-hmm. music. And, and, you know, the oh, song yeah. Rolling on the River had a lot of biblical meaning. Old Man River was a Negro spiritual that was very powerful that people really, uh, this is kind of almost in some ways a, um, 
you know, modern uptake, uptake of it. It's a romantic notion of the river, right? We look at the Mississippi and we have uh, romance towards it. Yeah. And, you know, Huckleberry Finn and it's like, and, and it's like this idea that the river is going to cleanse mm. you of the pain and suffering mm. that you're dealing with. So, you know, for, for a lot of black Americans, like the song Proud Mary was something that was very popular at the time. And a group called the Checkmates covered it. Mm. Listen to the story. Turner and Tina Turner and I guess the rest of the band heard that and they're like, you know, every now and then you like to hear something from us nice and easy. But here at the Ike and Tina Turner Review, we never do never do anything nice and easy. So it was a combination kind of like they took both styles in some ways and melded them together. Mm -hmm. The right? Clarence Clearwater Revival was the, the slow, you know, melancholy version. And then the sexy, upbeat mm -hmm. rock and roll mm -hmm. version the Checkmates did. Mm -hmm. was fused together into this to this day you know it's one of tina turner's probably next to what's love got to do with it it's the song that she's best remembered for well you know it, it it's the song but it's also a performance her dance moves along with it too are just like iconic so many people can just kind of like imitate those moves it's almost like a moonwalk right it, well it, you know part of it is like tina turner is not somebody who studied dance she's just somebody who enjoyed singing and dancing mm -hmm. And so, you know, with the iCats, her backup singers and dancers, um, you know, they're doing, they're kind of uh, moving their elbows and their forearms to try to echo the movement of a train. No, you know? it's the wheel boat, isn't it? It's the, that's, that's the movement of the wheel. The well, wheel it's a, it's a, tr the, yeah, I guess. Cause that's how the, that's the, the wheel. You know, I always thought about it as a train, but you're right. <laughs> no, it's the, yeah, it's the paddle. And then they're, they're sort of doing like a diving movement and that they're also like I, come it, onto the stage and they're doing something that's very like voguing yeah. where they're framing their face with mm -hmm. their forearms. Yeah. And the diving kind of thing I think is also an emulation of the of the wheel turning, right? You're mm -hmm. going you're you're making that motion of a circle that kind of thing. But you also like, you know, in doing some research for this podcast, you also looked at a bunch of other artists who actually covered it, too. And you were talking about, um, was it the syncopation, was it, the, for the songs? And you had, like, Bette Midler, you had a bunch of other people that yeah. just really took this song and, and squeezed all the joy out of it and handed <laughs> you this uh, moist rag. Yeah, I don't know quite why... This happens, but, um, and you know, when, when you hear people say, you got no soul, man, you got no soul. And no rhythm, no, right? Well, there's really saying, you know, and I, and I, I do believe this because, you know, I'm Puerto Rican. I'm as Latinx as they come undercover brother. And, um, and at the same time, I have a really hard time, like picking up the Latin clave, like hearing it in songs. So a Latin clave is da, 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 da. 
ta ta ta. So you hear it in I like to live in America. Okay, by me in America. Yeah. Which is really obvious, but a lot of uh, you know, Latinx music has that rhythm buried into it so you don't even you're you not conscious it's of it. It's yeah. under it's a layer. It's right? a it's a lattice for where they build the the rhythm and the melody that that is counterpoint to it. That is that is not even there, you know. So it's like it's this invisible force that's guiding the song. And so for a lot of, you know, for a lot of, um, I would say, and I guess I just have to play this for you guys because it's like, you just have to hear it and look, listen for it, you know, and maybe like actually an Ike and Tina song, A Fool in Love is a great example of when they, they're playing with the, with the syncopation and syncopation is, for example, like you have a rhythm. Three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. You see, syncopation um, comes a lot from playing the tambourine in church when you're stomping and you know playing that tambourine, so because expressing joy. Mm. And um, Tina Turner describes like what's love got to do with it as she's like a jog. And she said that she found the rhythm and what's love got to do with it because she and the music producer went for a little walk. Do, 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 what's love? And in the video, she's walking down a playground and she's flirting with all these guys who are admiring her, you know. Mm-hmm. So in, in I Can Tina Turner's Fool in Love, and this is one an early recording, uh, you can hear the, the, the syncopation here being, let me just play that for you guys because it's really wonderful, I think. This is from the album, their Pompeii recordings. I love this man and I don't know why. Okay, so she could, they could have be, I love this man. Da, 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 da. You're just a fool. You know you're in love. That would be the widest version you could do. Sure. And, and she did release a version that was like that. But instead, they go, you're just a fool. You know you're in love. So, so, the, so the, the, the rhythm is steady. So imagine that they're shoving all the notes into the same space so it makes it feel more exciting. Mm, it's richer. you got to face it. So here you hear Tina that scream, you know. Lip syncing along with me. It's so I know I am. This is a really great uh, song. It's from the album I Can Tina Turner, the original Pompeii recordings. And the first track on the album, Betcha Can't Kiss Me, has something really weird. I just want to surprise you guys with it here. I love how eccentric and strange and yet rock and roll Ike Turner's musical style. Remember is. when you used to say that I was always in your way? Remember, baby. Remember, baby. Remember, baby. 
It sounds like Alvin and the Chipmunks made their way into the recording studio, but I guess at that time period, <laughs> Alvin and the Chipmunks were really, or just sped up vocals were mm. really popular. And so Ike Turner's like, why not? <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. Like, is this a song, you know, Bet You Can't Kiss Me Just Once Time, Baby. But uh, they put it in, and so it's there. Yeah. It has some charm. It's kind of a, uh, it's very, um, Sounds old fashioned by today's standards, right? It, well, it, it's, uh, I think, you know, a lot of Ike and Tina Turner's recordings, especially that Pompeii album, holds up. And in 2021, I was listening to it at the gym and I was like, this is just as exciting as anything on the radio today. And, you know, I wasn't born in that time period. Uh, certainly music that I'm not familiar with until, you know, the Tina Turner documentary came out on HBO. And made me sort of like deep dive into, you know, her complete legacy. And I feel like in a lot of ways, uh, the documentary kind of does Tina a disservice because it, in order to sort of um, protect her heart, they're not allowing the world to rediscover the amazing music that she was a part of mm. in her early days as a musician with Ike Turner. And, you know, it, in a lot of ways, it's like, there is another story that'd be told. There is another film, another book that can be done about the well, life with the Ike and Tina Turner review. And so, well, this documentary was done with her blessing, yes. uh, her, 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 um, her approval and her husband spearheaded it. Correct. Is that correct. right? Yes. And uh, so, you know, it's going to be, Irwin Bach. yeah, it's going to be, have that kind of slant to it. Right. It's going to be, uh, this is who she is, uh, the uplifting things, those kinds of stuff. They, and the stuff that they don't want to focus on, they're not going to focus on because they are, in, in a sense, directing it. And one thing that I felt, you know, Tina Turner has always been is also a camp icon. You know, there is a reason why um, drag queens for years have done parodies of her name. Uh, this season on RuPaul's Drag Race, Tina Burner. Mm hmm. Um, Tinta Turner. <laughs> um, there's Larry Edwards, who uh, for, for 45 years in Las Vegas, a drag queen, a tribute artist, has paid tribute to Tina Turner. And, and you see Larry in the um, documentary. There's a short clip where he's uh, in the audience for the Oprah Winfrey show and Tina is the guest. And it's Larry sitting there and next to another uh, drag queen here in Chicago, Circuit Mom, who's been a guest on this podcast, mm -hmm. uh, is sitting right next to them. And this is sometime in the 90s, I would assume, right? Yeah. And so, you know, for me, it's like uh, Tina Turner sort of entered the world of camp when she took on the role of uh, auntie entity, although mm -hmm. they call her just auntie in the mm -hmm. film um, in Mad Max Beyond the Thunderdome. And she insisted on doing her stunts. She insisted on, on really honing her craft as an actor. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in a lot of ways, um, she is in, in Arnold Schwarzenegger's film briefly, The Last Action Hero. <laughs> She's like... You can't do that, Arnold. And Arnold's like, watch me. <laughs> well, you know, Auntie Entity was not her first role. I mean, people, a lot of people knew her from Tommy. She played the acid queen, and that was certainly a campy role where she takes Tommy. Uh, like, I think the father thinks that she's going to have sex with him, that she's some kind of like uh, a sex worker or something. Or I'm not really sure exactly what. I just recently watched a clip, but it's been, you know, many years since I've seen the film. Well, the plot of Tommy yeah. is, is that he's a gifted pinball wizard. Yes. Mm -hmm. And he he doesn't he can't see he doesn't hear uh and he doesn't speak right and so she takes him up to this room and then she ends up like putting him in this thing and like she they call her the acid queen and he looks like she injects him with acid or something like that with there's blood. some kind of blood transfer yeah. there's some kind of weird transformation i'm not going to pretend like i understand what's going on so that was her first role and it was very campy now the song's weird it's not a great song i don't think 
Um, and I'm your gypsy, acid queen. Yeah. yeah, and people are like, some people really like Tommy. Some people are like, eh, it's awful. Uh, but you know, when she came out uh, in uh, Mad Max, they said that they actually wrote the part for her. Well, that's uh, more uh, Tina Turner um, uh, history. Um, so the role was originally created for Jane Fonda. Jane Fonda looked and said, no. <laughs> why didn't Jane Fonda want that role? I, she, I don't know why she didn't want to do it. But so uh, they were like, you know what? I don't want Jane Fonda either. And so they, they started, uh, they saw an interview with Tina Turner and they fell in love with her as, as the world does, you know, and they wrote, rewrote the whole movie to be basically include this anti-hero auntie entity mm -hmm. who builds this town from the rubbles and is forced to reconcile with Mad Max played by Mel Gibson. Mm -hmm. Aren't we a pair raggedy man? <laughs> but you know, that wasn't the, uh, again, like um, Steven Spielberg, I guess wanted her for the color purple. Yeah, uh, can you imagine could for you Whoopi imagine? Goldberg's role? Yeah, and I you show is ugly, Miss Tina Turner. <laughs> doesn't ring. Doesn't ring true. But yeah. she, you know, she said she didn't want it because it reminded. She's like, I just got out of a, an abusive relationship, you know, a decade before. Like, I don't want to revisit that. It's too close to home. I mean, like Tina could Turner's life is basically the color purple to you some know? degree. More the musical, actually, where the ca the main character of Miss Seeley actually does become successful mm. and. And has, you know, the film is is sort of uh, more about the heartache and the hardship of Miss Seeley, but the musical actually, you know, she starts a, a business where she sells pants. Yeah, she's got a new design for pants. <laughs> and so she becomes like yeah. financially wealthy. lesbians love pants. <laughs> <laughs> they too, and and uh, and so you know, in terms of Mad Max, um, the the they made a a wig for her where she had to shave her head. Can you imagine? Tina Turner walking around the set looking like Lupita Nyong'o. Well, I'm sure she wore, and you know, I'm sure she wasn't walking around bald. Well, she may have been. Maybe she she'd was be like, like, "If you take my picture, you will be off, escorted off the set, and that camera will be seized." <laughs> but you know, I guess the wig was so heavy that they had to 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 affix it like that. But you know what else was heavy was her dress. Now again, she's five foot four. I, that dress is said yeah. to have weighed seventy pounds because it was all made out of like. Um, discarded like chain mail like it had oh. bottle caps it had all sorts of other things inside of it and you know you said she did her own stunts but you know she also drove her car and i guess they wanted to use a stick shift but she's like i can't do a stick shift so they had it just like an automatic <laughs> transmission so there she is out in the middle of the desert right and driving automatic mm -hmm. you know and in, in the apocalypse even turner turner mm -hmm. gets what she needs but yeah you know, interesting yeah. figure though i guess with stick like with cars nowadays that stick shifts like the most people that buy stick shifts are women isn't that amazing? Isn't that interesting? Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah. So why do people prefer stick shifts over automatic? I think you have more control over like how fast you go and where you go and like okay. slowing down and speeding up and stuff like that. I mean, you uh, when I first met you, you had a stick shift. And so it was kind of uh, was a little hard to uh, to manage at first. But I learned. My father was a big uh, fan of, um, you know, manual transmission mm -hmm. um, because he felt the, the they lasted longer. Oh, really? Ah. So, like, automatic well, transmissions mm. are more expensive to repair. I to. think also, too, because, yeah. you know, the, uh, Puerto Rico is, can be very mountainous, right? And lots of hills and whatnot, too. And I think that uh, they're, uh, when you're going up and down hills, it's... it's oh, yeah. Better, you you know? don't... <laughs> yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. um, you know, do you see uh, her role as a villain? 
You know, I mean, I've watched, it, I've, it? I've watched it several times. Well, it's definitely very campy. Uh, you know, she's uh, somebody who created this town and, and wants to uh, see it succeed and wants to, in some ways, you know, there, here's this guy, he's the scientist. He controls the energy. So she's fighting him up against like, Master Blaster. Not big oil, but big pig shit at this point in time, you know? But <laughs> Who the- run Bata Town? <laughs> and so, you know, Master she- Blaster runs Bata Town. She's, you know, she is, uh, you know, standing up to the big the big guy, even though the big guy's not so big. Um, well, Master Blaster was a little person yeah. and a big guy who is then uh, forced to fight Mel Gibson mm-hmm. In the Thunderdome. And, Mal- and when Mel Gibson discovers that the big guy is special needs, he puts down his gauntlet and said, I'm, I can't kill this man. Yeah. And she's, she comes, the, the whole crowd goes crazy. And so Tina Turner comes into the Thunderdome in a pulley where she's like hanging clearly like if she felt she would probably break her leg. I'm sure she had a safety harness. I didn't see it. <laughs> well, that's the magic of Hollywood. I mean, honey. Maybe and she's doing a stunt there. So she's yeah. fly, leaping into the, to the stadium and she's like, what's this? What's this? We had a deal. And the, uh, was it, wasn't it me who made the rules? You don't have to tell me about the rules. I made the rules and the, this man has broken the law and the, the law says, bust the deal, face the wheel. And it's such a funny moment. Bust the deal, face the wheel. That I've like, I've even lip synced that in performances. Yeah. <laughs> and so he, they had to spin the wheel and he got sent out into the desert and where he hung out with a bunch of kids. And, you know, initially the film was to be sort of like, um, you know, strange kids in the middle of the desert. Mm-hmm. And I guess the film's writers and producers turned it into a Mad Max movie. So the film was initially supposed to be about the children, the spooky children in the desert. Oh. And so then they brought in Captain Walker, you know, and, and Mad Max and all those other elements to it. Oh, and know. Tina Turner into it. But initially it was just supposed to be about the kids. And I'm like, I feel like the kids is kind of like the weakest part of the movie. Don't you think? Well, they lives to tell the tale, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, and, and there's a there's a lot of like the this to me the most fascinating scenes is the Thunderdome, but also like um the the world of the pig shit underneath it, you know, where uh, Master Blaster has this this world that they're controlling and there's this guy who's Tina Turner's henchman who is just no matter what happens to him, he is unkillable, unstoppable. And there, the very end of the movie, they finally get rid of him. Mm. But he's always falling off a moving truck or being crushed or being pulverized, set on fire. The apocalypse, and after they have that nuclear radiation, anything's possible. You've seen Godzilla, right? Yeah. So, you know, part of me is like, also, um, I understand that Tina Turner was very instrumental in uh, several times in guiding Mel Gibson uh, away from drugs and alcohol. And having nervous breakdowns. And most recently, Mel Gibson uh, went on BET television and said uh, Tina Turner saved his life twice. Oh, really? Yeah. And and when he had this this racist nervous breakdown, it was Tina Turner who reached out to Mel Gibson and said, you need to get yourself into rehab again. Mm. And he's since apologized for that and says he struggled uh, with mental health and his racism was part of that, right? You know, we're all racist to some degree. We live in a racist world. It's what you do with it. And, mm-hmm. and, and you know, understanding, acknowledging it and, you know, working with it, I think, is is something that everybody has to answer. You know, it's, it's interesting, like Tina Turner talking about racism mm-hmm. in that interview with Ed Bradley, where she's just like, Mike Wallace. Bo- uh, oh, yeah, Mike Wallace. Sorry. Uh, where she's just like, it doesn't bother me. Mm-hmm. It, 
you know, she's she's kind of sounds like RuPaul, you know. You know, some people that are, you know, they they're very they have that single trajectory. RuPaul was always like, I'm going to be famous someday, so they have that goal, and just nothing's going to get them away from that goal. Yeah. And so when you're single mindedness like that, you can ignore a lot of that trauma and not thinking about it sometimes is a way to get away from the trauma. Now, you know, you're talking about, you know, Auntie Entity is uh, making her kind of like a, a camp icon. Right. Yeah. And I, I definitely agree to that. And one of my favorite productions I ever saw of Rocky Horror Picture Show, uh, which I saw on stage um, in my hometown of Erie, they had, a, a you know, I didn't know what to expect because I'd seen the movie. We'd gone to the midnight movies. I'm probably in my early 20s and I go and I see it. And then coming out on stage is, you know, not somebody looking like uh, Frank and Furter, uh, but, uh, you know, a man in a dress uh, looking like Tina Turner. You know, he was an African, uh, he was a black doctor. Uh, I think his name was Dr. Jerry Lee Loveless, Lovelace or Loveless or something like that. I talked to him at some of the parties afterwards and whatnot. Lovely fellow. But he did Frank and Furter like Tina Turner. And it was amazing because, you know, when you listen to the Broadway album, it's very Motown, right? Uh, of uh, Rocky Horror Picture right, yeah, Show. I'm sorry, yeah, the original version. Yeah. You know, the, uh, the Rocky but, yeah. Horror Show. But then when they made it into a movie, they rockified it a little bit more. So it's more rock and roll. You know, the original one was very Motown, almost like doo-wop in a certain sense. And so, you know, that rock sound that Tina mm-hmm. does as Frank and Furter, uh, amazing. I'm just a sweet transvestite from transsexual. Transylvania. <laughs> you better <laughs> exactly. be good to me. Why can't you be exactly. good to me? I mean, it, it, it makes sense if you want to. And that's what, what kind of pissed me off. Cause when Laverne Cox was cast as Dr. Frankenfurter, I was kind of hoping she'd bring something new, like mm-hmm. something refreshing, something rock and roll. And instead she just did a Tim Curry impersonation. Mm. Yeah. Who, uh, so remember when we said in the beginning of the show that we we're going to take it nice and easy? Yeah. Well, it's the part of the show we take things nice and rough. <laughs> and we're going to give you the tea on Tina Turner. People who have fought with Tina publicly and mm. said, and even taken uh, Ike Turner's side of things, which is like oh, deplorable. That's the absolute worst. Let's talk about that first, because Ike Turner uh, What's your thoughts on Ike Turner? Your, you yourself? Well, I think that you know, there's some rock and roll brilliance there. I think that there was a. This is a man who probably suffered a lot of you know racism in America, and that can cause in, in, intense trauma. I think you know he's a, a domestic abuser. I think that um, you know had maybe he gotten some therapy, or maybe they had couples therapy, or if he had some other way to. Um, deal with his emotions that maybe he would turn out to be a different kind of person. Now you did mention that he had a stutter, right? Uh, And so I think it was maybe hard for him to communicate. And when we know when communication breaks down between people, violence can then follow, right? God, it just makes me so sad, you know, because it's like there was so much beauty and so many amazing things that that group of people did, you know, Mm -hmm. the, the, I mean, and and they really like suffered so mm-hmm. much at the hands of this violent man, but also this violent world that they they lived in. Right. And and it's and it's heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. 
So it's t- a tragedy. So Tina had made her yeah. her big comeback, right? And Ike goes on the Arsenio Hall show, and Arsenio Hall is like, yeah. kind of like rooting for Ike and being like, almost like, what did he say to her? Like, I almost wanted. I beat to get- her be- to make her sing better. I beat her to make her sing better. And I was just like, when we watched that, I was like. <laughs> Oh my God, Arsenio, you better stop. But Arsenio was just like, I don't like her either. Yeah, he said uh, he uh, worked a lot with her in Las Vegas and mm-hmm. said uh, she was not good to him. <laughs> but, uh, you know. Yeah, better be good to me, you know, Tina. And Practice also, what you, you preach. And, and by this yeah. point in time, too, you know, uh, when he would have been on Arsenio Hall, you know, domestic violence, when the time that Tina was beaten and stuff like that, it was very rarely talked about, you know, as I was growing up, I'd say in the seven, like maybe the later seven, eighties, definitely. There were a lot of PSAs on television about domestic abuse. There was advertisements in magazines, uh, you know, it was something that people hid, but it started to be, it showed it up on sitcoms and on television shows. It started to become more talked about. And I think definitely after Tina Turner came forward, it was even more talked about. And even like Farrah Fawcett started in a, a made-for-TV movie called The Burning Bed, where she was a, a battered wife. And this was based on a book and based on a true story, something that went to court. A woman who was beaten, right. you know, set her husband on fire while he was sleeping because she thought of it like there was nowhere else to go. And it was a huge cause celeb. Uh, people really paid attention to it. Uh, and so there was a real focus on domestic abuse at this time. Yeah. And, and to me, it's like, you know, there's a there's a tragedy uh, based on that situation because it's like clearly like even Tina Turner had a very complicated relationship with her success mm. where her success was tied to the the story of her being a survivor of this domestic abuse. Mm. And, you know. Like, you know, seeing Ike Turner, um, I just see like a defeated, sad man who. Well, at that point in time, he was on Arsenio Tall. Yeah. He had just. Uh, he, he died just, just some years just, later. He had just been arrested. He said it was arrested for the 13th time. So this is somebody that had to be like, had to. De- and he's like, and they never found drugs on me. You know, this is somebody who had to deal with the police on a constant basis. Yeah. And so, I mean, think about like what it must have been like to see an Ike and Tina Turner show. In the, in the 60s. Mm. So I did some research and the hourly wage in 1965 was $1.60. Mm-hmm. It cost $2.50 to see a Beach Boys in concert. Wow. At the height of their popularity. So probably Ike and Tina was around a dollar. Maybe. So think about like what you make an hour, like, you know, uh, minimum wage, I guess, if, de- if Democrats get their way, 15, right? will be 15 an hour. So imagine seeing like Tina Turner today for $15. (laughs) I mean, shoot. What, what a giveaway. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, people had more disposable income in the, in the past and they also had more free time, right? you know, people went to concerts, they went out, they were seeing things, they were doing things, you know, she was performing for people that were like, you know, the baby boomers, right? So they had their parents' money to spend on things They, you know, maybe they had a part-time job in the summer and, and they, 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 that would help them pay for their college because they leave college without any debt. So Arsenio Hall, not a fan of Tina. No. Elton John, definitely not a fan of Tina. Elton John and Tina were set to tour in the year 2000, but during a rehearsal on VH1's Divas Live 99, Elton John stormed off during rehearsal where he was planning on playing Proud Mary with Tina Turner. Uh she didn't like my hair. She didn't like the color of my piano and she didn't like my clothes. She said, you wear too much Versace. It makes you look fat. 
and you have to wear Armani. <laughs> Where's the lie? <laughs> and I guess you know, Team they, Tina here. Just kidding. They eventually yeah. did make up, you know, over a lunch at his house or something like that. But she was just like, you know, I, she canceled the tour. She was just like, I just. Uh, I shouldn't have told him how to play the piano. Other people, and she lists like, you know, Mick Jagger, David Bowie, all these other people. They could take a little bit of direction, but not uh, Sir Elton John. Uh, they and were the- supposed, they were going to make bank. They mm-hmm. had sold out this tour because initially, like, I think um, he had opened uh, in, in her tour, the 24-7 tour. Mm-hmm. Um, he either she or he was opening together. So like um, Kiss and Aerosmith did this mm-hmm. where it was a double bill. But in this ca- in this tour, they were going to share the stage together and perform together an entire concert. Mm-hmm. And um, th- and she said uh, that despite the money, that both of them would have been miserable. Yeah, they would have enjoyed it. Um, so they're like, no, let's not do it. So um, to this, you know, I also I think about it too. It's like her saying that you wear too much Versace. Versace died in nineteen ninety seven. She said this to him in nineteen ninety. He sang his funeral. Yeah. <laughs> Two years later, after one of his closest friends died in a vicious gun, you know, at the hands of, of a murderer on the street. Mm. That, I would say that's insensitive. Well, you know, she did apologize for it. Um, <laughs> you <laughs> know, you better be good to me. He, like, wri- he, he writes about it in his memoirs. Yeah. So there's a lot of news articles about it. And you can read some more about it, too. But for some reason, they, he must have misremembered it as 1997. Uh, but I'm guessing that like, they had a lot of fights. Uh, yeah. Him well, and maybe. Tina over the years. <laughs> you know, and they're both strong personalities. Mm-hmm. They're both survivors. I'm mm-hmm. still standing. And, um, you know, and, and he loves and hates Tina Turner. And there's also some mystery around uh, Patti LaBelle. Oh, there's Tina no Turner. mystery about that. <laughs> no, there's no mystery. I thought so, there was a little mystery. So Tina Turner and Patti LaBelle were, uh, they were invited to perform. I think of a live aid concert and um, backstage she, you know, Patty, Patty LaBelle is a really interesting person because she's somebody who's always wanted to get Aretha Franklin to love her. Aretha doesn't love her. She wanted Tina Turner to love her. Tina doesn't love her. And her fans like the Reverend James Wright Chanel wanted to love her. She doesn't love him. With the Patty's pie controversy. Remember that? <laughs> she, she did the best she could. She did the best she could. But it is interesting, like, how Patty LaBelle is wanting to be loved. And also, there are people wanting to love her. And it's this love triangle that's happening in her life. So what happened with her and Tina? So she went backstage. And she was, you know, after she had performed. And <laughs> let me pull the, the quote here. Uh, she basically said, no, darling. You're sweaty. You're moist. Don't touch me. Aww. <laughs> and Patty really, really was hurt by that uh, to the point that to this day she talks about it. But she did not ever mention Tina Turner by name. But her fans, the, the Nancy Drews, got on the case and deduced that it was at the Live 8 concert where she and uh, had been performing with Mick Jagger on stage. And Patty LaBelle was right next the mm. act following. So it made, you know, because Patty Bell talks about there was a woman with Mick Jagger mm-hmm. who she can't say her name. Oh, so people know. Now, we, yeah. do, we do know that Patty LaBelle does get moist, though, because we had a, a, <laughs> a, a, a well, we did a whole show about like celebrity secret writers um, with David Charpentier, who does manages a lot of the drag queens from RuPaul's Drag Race. Uh, he. <laughs> He told us that Patty LaBelle had in her writer that on the stage there has to be 18 blue towels. 
so that when she's sweaty, she can mop up the sweat. And because the towel is blue, it won't show the makeup mm. that comes off, you know. Um, no, you know, darling, you're moist. Tina Turner can, <laughs> is a diva, you know, uh, and she um, is. She doesn't want sweaty. She doesn't want sweaty. She's known for her favorite. Guess what, what, what Tina Turner's favorite song is? What is it? My Way by Frank Sinatra, which is oh, the number wow. one song people get killed singing in karaoke. Yeah, we covered that on a podcast uh, many years ago. At least five or seven individuals throughout the world have been killed while they sang at karaoke my way i did it my way so the thing about this song my way is like it's one of those songs polarizing yeah it's polarizing right you're like i'm the boss i'm gonna do it i'm gonna do it my way i did it my way so if somebody is in the audience who feels like you've really wronged them and you sing that song because you think you're gonna put it in that song (laughs) you might just get killed for it so be careful. Yeah. Uh, another thing that the uh, documentary uh, skipped on was interviewing and talking. They didn't interview Olivia Newton-John. Big mess there. They didn't talk to Cher. Huge mess there. They didn't uh, bring up or talk about Tim Capello, her muscular saxophone player. Oh, man. Did they even show him in the video? Briefly. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, you guys might recognize him from the film The Lost Boys, mm-hmm. where he's performing, you know. Shirtless. He, muscle sacks. He was, um, you know, really controversial at the time because he, I guess he, he uh, toured with Eric Carmen and Billy Crystal and opened and played for Bill, Peter Gabriel uh, for a while. And um, he got into bodybuilding um, when he hit rock bottom from struggling with heroin oh, addiction. Wow. And so he was very successful at playing the saxophone and, you know, really gave the 80s saxophone look and sound. And More so than Kenny G? Well, Kenny <laughs> G was a, a clarinetist. Oh, okay. So anyways, he would, you know, with his muscular body and his weird hair. It was he captivating. Would, was captivating, but he would fuck them while he playing the microphone. <laughs> and so he's in the, you know, we don't need another hero. He's like, has a saxophone solo. And mm. you can see him kind of fucking while he's playing the saxophone. And I thought, you know. And he I, sings with her though too, doesn't he? He sings with Tina Turner. He's the guy who replaced Ike Turner's in um, Proud Mary. Oh, wow. So when you hear the new version, that's not, you're like, that sounds like some white guy pretending to sound like Ike Turner. That's Tim Capello, the muscular sax mm. player. See, that's why you listen to Feast of Fun. You're like, we, we on the case here, honey. <laughs> I, I had to dig deep to find that out. The, the whole thing about um, her wigs, mm-hmm. that was Larry Edwards who gave me the tea on that. There's very little, there's no, you're not going to find this anywhere else on the internet. No. I had to dig deep to get that. Mm-hmm. I expected at the end of the documentary. You tried to get Larry to come on the podcast. He was just like, I'm just, I can't do that. (laughs) (laughs) Because he knows we're going to ask him about all kinds of things, Mm -hmm. you know. And part of it is like, I'm kind of glad we're able to talk about Tina Turner unrestrained, you know, because Tina Turner is a really fascinating, complicated, uh, wonderful artist who has influenced and touched so many lives. And, And, you know, the music both that she did with Ike Turner and the music that she did from 1984 and on uh, really transformed the world and laid the foundation for so many artists to shine and succeed. You know, would we have Beyonce today if it wasn't for Tina Turner? Mm. You know, so at the end of the documentary, when Tina Turner's coming on stage, you know, and Ike had just died, I kind of almost expected her to say, 
I am Mrs. Ike Turner. Because <laughs> that's a reference to A Star is Born, right? And in a lot of ways, Tina Turner's life is kind of like A Star is Born, right? Yeah, it's like, in many ways, yeah. You know, she, she was very much enamored with the rhythm, the kings of rhythm, and she dated the saxophone player. Um, a lot of those people in the band were uh, romantically involved. And she married the head of the of the group, and they had a really rotten marriage. And she suffered tremendously at his hands and was beaten for years. And she sacrificed everything and took on all the financial responsibility to leave that horrible relationship. And, um, you know, rose from the ashes like a phoenix with an amazing wig. <laughs> and, um, and the wig literally like looked like it had wings, you know? And, and she took her off into flight. And she is uh, considered one of the most successful recording artists in modern in history. And, you know, it, yeah. it's sad because, you know, this documentary, it's part of her farewell, right? Uh, her health isn't good. Um, she's had, you know, intestinal cancer, I believe. Right. And, mm -hmm. uh, kidney problems in the past. She had had, she got a stroke, uh, shortly after uh, getting married to the love of her life. And so she's 81 and, uh, she, uh, you know, they did the, the show on Broadway. She flew to the United States to kind of say goodbye to the American public. And I think that this documentary is a way for her to kind of say, uh, goodbye to the world. And she's going to, uh, enjoy the time that she has left, uh, privately. But yeah, you know, you know, we can yeah. always hope that you know that that she maybe can get better. And you know, it, sometimes it's hard to keep a good diva down. Uh, in the past year since her retirement, uh, Tina Turner had a stroke, mm -hmm. has intestinal cancer, and kidney failure. Her husband, uh, you know, Edwin Bach, gave her one of her kidneys. She was actually contemplating assisted suicide. And she lives in a country, Switzerland, that that, that does that. And I, from what I understand, I guess at least 13 states in the United States allows that as well. Yeah. And so, you know, it was a conversation that she had. This is something that's also not discussed in a documentary because um, they make it sound like she was going to take her life in her own hands as opposed to assisted mm -hmm. suicide, which is ch willingly to choose to end your life through, you know, medical means and most uh I, which is very yeah. different and yeah and depending on where you go most times you, you have to get like a doctor to sign yeah. off and you have to kind of be like can you are you going to die within the next six months a lot of times is what the criteria may be what i really also liked about the documentary is that we finally get to see and hear tina turner meditating Oh, the Namio Renkyo. Namio Renkyo. It's like, it's like, wow. It's like, it's a different person, you know? And, and there is a power of meditation and prayer and, you know, doing something that requires your concentration that is not a task, but it's a, a repetitive movement, mm. whether that's exercise or dancing or meditation can be very healthy for your mental well being. And Tina Turner, um, you know, in an interview with uh, Gail King, she said, you know what? I am at peace with everything. I sit every day. I wake up by, in a beautiful home in, in Zurich, Switzerland. I see this lake and I think about all the struggles of my life and I am happier than I've ever been. I forgive everybody, including Ike. Mm. And I was, I was so moved by that. I was like, I wish that we all could be like Tina Turner sometimes. I wish Tina Turner could, you know, sometimes um, transcend that pain. Because I, like I see her in the interviews about this film mm -hmm. and during this film, and I see that she's 
you know, still holding on to a lot yeah. of trauma. Well, she, I think that, I don't know if you can. You know, can I, you transcend that? Did she really say that she was happier than she's ever been before? I'm, yeah, yeah. Because I know that part. I of posted it, the. I was, okay. It was so important. I I posted the video clip on the Feast of Fun group because also yeah. she um did say that you know uh, people want to think because I had this kind of great success that it balanced all that pain out. Right. You know, and she's like, it didn't balance it out. There was pain. There was happiness, and it just that's how it was. But Buddhists choose to be happy. Mm. Buddhism is about looking at crisis and trouble. And despite all that heartache and hardship is saying, I'm not going to let this define me. Mm. I'm not going to let you hurt me anymore. I'm going to choose to be happy and I'm going to walk past this. And it's, it's a very difficult thing to do. It's, it requires supernatural strength, mm. but it can be done. And, it, and, and meditation and prayer is where you start. And I think, you know, another lesson that I learned about Tina Turner is that, you know, like we think about, especially as queer people, as LGBTQ people who are in our forties and fifties, mm. <clears throat> we're, we're thinking our lives are over. You know, we're taught to be very youth oriented. We're like, I'm not 20 years old. I'm not a star on TikTok. My career is not going to go anywhere. And Tina Turner how old was Tina Turner like when, in 1984? In 1984, crazy. she was 40 motherfucking five years old, okay? She was in the beginning of a brand of new renaissance. Yeah. renaissance. Mm -hmm. You don't know what tomorrow brings. Yeah. You could be hoofing it in Las Vegas and having Patti LaBelle tell you no thanks. <laughs> and Arsenio Hall scowling at you and, and John Elton John, uh, you know, storming off. But if you hold on tight... And you keep a fabulous wig mm. in your back pocket, you can mm. do anything. Well, yeah, and I think you're definitely, uh, uh, especially for queer people, that's very important. You know, I think especially for stuff, people our age, you know, we're always like, you know, once you're a gay man past the age of 26, like nobody's going to watch you after 30. Nobody's going to watch you after once you hit. And they keep pushing that post back as, you mm. know, we get older. Thank God. Uh, but yeah, you can still keep on going and still be fabulous, still create. It's never too late. No, never too late. And it's never too late to support Feast of Fun. And you can do that by becoming a Plus member at feastoffun.com slash plus because your contribution to the show is what makes the show happen. I wouldn't be able to do these shows without my husband and without you, the audience, the dear listeners who have supported us over the years. Uh, you may also support us at Patreon, patreon.com slash feastoffun. You get yourself an ad-free experience. Yeah, you can listen to this whole podcast without being like, do you want to refinance your mortgage? Here's how. <laughs> You're like, oh, great, exactly. ads. Uh, Fausto's birthday is coming up. so April 16th. April 16th. So if maybe you'd like to give him a little birthday present, if you've been a listener for a while and you say, Fausto, I really love what you do, why don't you go treat yourself? Because if you don't treat yourself, you cheat yourself. And you can do a Venmo at Feast of Fun, or you can make a donation at uh, feastoffun.com slash donate. What is your favorite Tina Turner song? Uh, I mean, What's Love Got to Do With It is uh, so What's class, love like, but also Private Dancer is fun because it's also campy, right? Yeah, that's that's the, you guys hear me say that all the time on the show. Do I the say it's like, Dutch mark, uh, marks a dollars, American Express will do nicely, thank you. Let me loosen up your collar. Tell me, you want me to talk about my Patreon page again? <laughs> oh. That's patreon.com slash feast of fun. So we're leaving here 
with the title song of her comeback album, Private Dancer. Mm. Enjoy. Um, please check out Tina, the documentary on HBO Max. It's fantastic. Fall in love. Get hooked on Tina all over again. <laughs> Smoke it up. Inject it. Whatever. Yes. Free base Tina, honey. It's fabulous. <laughs> this one is good for you. Mm-hmm. It can bring you rhythm and soul and, and syncopation and raw energy. Remember, rock and roll is dangerous. Rock and roll is about rebellion. Rock and roll is about fearlessly being yourself. Take care. Love you so much. Bye, everyone. Bye, everybody. A lot of men come in these places And the men are all the same You don't look at their faces And you don't ask their names You don't think of them as evil You don't think of them at all You keep your mind on the body Keeping your eyes on the wall Your private dancer Dancer for money Do what you want me to do Just a private dancer Dancer for money And any old music will do Deutschmark's a dollar American Express will do